With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. Welcome along to another episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. My weekly dive into the world of film, music, TV, and just trying to talk about all the wonderful things that those relationships can bring together. Apologies, this episode is slightly late this week. We normally drop every Monday and for reasons that were out of our hands, this one took a little bit more time to um, to get together. Needless to say, we'll be back this coming Monday with our regular spot. But we really wanted to try and get someone on board to talk about the new Mission Impossible film, uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Part one. Now, for the last film, we had uh, director and writer Christopher McQuarrie and composer Lauren Balfe together. And not to say that their jobs haven't entailed more work this time around, but what we love doing with this podcast is shining a light on those craftsmen and women who are so important to the process and the creative process and the collaboration, but they never really get the limelight or the spotlight on them. So that's what we've been trying to do. And we are so thrilled that we are able to do that with a couple of people who have an amazing resume individually. And together, they've worked across a number of films together. Not least, Top Gun Maverick and the new Mission Impossible film. Now, Cecile Tournesac is an amazing... Well, she's many things, but I guess her job title would be music editor and producer. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what that is because Cecile does that in our chat. But needless to say, the collaboration between her, the composer, the editor, the director and Tom Cruise on this film and many other departments is very, very important to the final film that you see and hear. And then Eddie Hamilton is the editor. So it's his job to cut it all together and you'll hear Eddie talk in such brilliant enthusiastic detail about working with Christopher and Lauren and Cecile on this film and how how long it took how much work was involved but you can hear how much joy and pleasure and pride they take in their work so I'm really thrilled that this is a slightly different episode to usual but it's incredibly important and relevant and interesting and exciting to hear. So our guests today then are Cecile Turnesac and Eddie Hamilton to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning 1, directed by our old friend Christopher McQuarrie and scored by our even older friend Lauren Balfe. Now, I can't really tell you anything about the Mission Impossible franchise that you don't already know. But what I will say about this film is... In terms of when you go to the cinema, particularly, you know, a kind of summer blockbuster action film, it takes all the boxes and more. I had such a great time watching this film. You think you know the character, you think you know what to expect, but McQuarrie and his team, they just, and Tom, they just push things and they just make you have so much fun in the cinema. So without further ado... Let's get into the conversation with Cecile and Eddie after we've heard Lauren's cue from the film Collision Alarm. 
This is great. I feel like we've got the dream team here as well because it's the collaboration that's such a big part in conversation, I guess, with a with a film like this. And can I just say from the off, congratulations. It's everything you want from cinema, really, in terms of kind of going in, being thoroughly entertained. The tone of this as well is just, I don't know, I think that that relationship with Haley and Tom on screen, that adds a certain kind of, there's a cheekiness to it that that is really brilliant. And yeah, I mean, just, oh yeah, sort of boom. I found new veins on my neck after that train scene. Oh my God, oh, it's just great. It's so great. Thank you so much. I love your enthusiasm. And I know you're hugely enthusiastic to everyone who comes on your show and it is much appreciated. Thank you. It means so much after three years of hard wow. work for both of us, for me and Cecile, you know, we worked for, well, we were on Top Gun before that and Mission Impossible Fallout before that. So we have developed a, a good rhythm for working, but this one was a pressure cooker for a long time. It took a, it took us a while to, to find the tone and the voice and emotion of the score that we wanted. And I'll, I'm going to let Cecile talk more than I am. So, so well, let's go. Eddie, when you are kind of with something like this, you know, it's like three years you're talking about, I'm assuming that you're, you're there and you're editing as it's happening, you know, as there, as Chris is filming it, as that's kind of, you know, you're there putting sequences together so that him and Tom can look at it and go, no, we need to do, I need to jump off that thing on the motorbike another dozen times or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Or this, or the more intimate moments as well, but yeah. are you there kind of cutting as as it's happening really. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you like a 30 second summary of what a film editor does for the- Impossible, for the, impossible. For the, <laughs> for the listeners who aren't familiar with, with, the, with the role that film editors, and you, I'll, I'll let Cecile talk about music editors, but film editors, if you think about it, you have sometimes 500 people working flat out to make the action in front of the camera between action and cut happen. And then everything that the camera captures and all the sound that is recorded goes to one person, basically. It goes to my team and then it all comes to me. And my job is to go through all the footage, break it all down and start to sketch out scenes on a timeline. And really what the director is doing, what Chris McCory is doing, especially on these films, is he's gathering ingredients when he's in production. He doesn't, he's steering the ship in a direction, but he doesn't know exactly what port it's going to. Mm -hmm. But he gives himself a lot of options on the set. The actors are encouraged to give us a lot of different emotional shades in their in their delivery and, and to play and to come up with new ideas on the day and ad lib and, and have fun on the set. And we tell, certainly everyone who's done it before knows this, but Haley, for example, we reassured her right at the beginning, you know, don't worry, we're only going to put great stuff in the film. You are going to be incredible in this movie. Trust us, relax into the process, have fun on the set. And then Chris and I build the film entirely in editorial. There is no script, really. Uh, the wow. script is what the script supervisor types up at the end of each day. McHugh and Tom like, lean into this idea of building the characters around who they cast and building the locations into the story. But the editor is in charge of everything that the audience sees and hears, certainly at the beginning, from the very beginning of the movie to the end. So it's a position of immense privilege. And it's it's a great, it, it's enormously uh, exciting because you're the first person to see anything of the movie come to life on a timeline. And of course, films don't exist as raw footage. They exist as 
images cut together to create emotion, to create excitement, and to hold the audience's hand through the emotional journey of the movie from the first from the first shot of the film and then every emotional beat through the movie thousands of little emotional beats and we're we're constantly gauging what are we doing to the audience's emotions with every single cut how are we manipulating the audience what are we giving them what are we doing for the characters and how are we keeping uh, the suspense or the action alive for the audience through the you know quite frankly long running time of this movie and the, and the film starts out obviously much longer and our job is to compress the maximum amount of story into the minimum amount of screen time. And Chris and I work on it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and then months and months and months going through the movie 67, sometimes for each scene, we'll go through it maybe 40 times in a day. Wow. Like car- carving out every moment, every emotional beat, every tiny little eye movement of the cast to try and make sure that it's as exciting and as emotional and that you're leaning in the entire time. You're, and also that the film is, is holding your hand and guiding your eye around the frame so that everything that Chris McQuarrie wants you uh, to see and hear is presented to you exactly when you need to see and hear it. So it's an effortless experience. It's just, it's just a purely emotional experience. It's not intellectual for you. You know, you just go on the ride with the characters and you feel the emotions consistently all the way through. And in a way that the, the easier a film is to watch, the harder it has been in post-production <laughs> and the harder we work. And Chris and Tom set the quality control threshold so high for every department on the movie. They lead with this expectation of, of world-class excellence, which mm. I share and I'm super enthusiastic about. And I'm, I have, I had spiritual experiences in a cinema as a, as a child, which I still remember to this day. And it's my privilege to be part of a team who want to give that cinema experience to another generation, to the audience around the world. I pinch myself every day going into work and, and we do, we, so I'm working every day as they film, I'm working on the next day's footage and I'm starting to sketch ideas together, turn over VFX shots, tell Chris if I think it's working, what they've got. Sometimes I'll even have a feed from the set on my wow. iPad in my room and I'm watching and McHugh has a feed to talk to me directly in the edit room and I'll hear him say, hear him go, Eddie, have we got it? Have we got it? And so I'll be able to watch it and say, yeah, I think that's great. Wow. So there is, there's, there's a great communication there. And especially because we've done Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible Fallout, Top Gun Maverick, we worked on very closely. Tom and McHugh produced that film to, and mm. Chris wrote it. And then on this one, and obviously part two as well. And Cecile, as the music editor, is absolutely instrumental in building the score as we go along, sometimes I'll, I'll give her scenes and then she will start to play around with the with the with the suite that Lorne and his team have sent her. And she'll explain she she gets stems of everything, which she'll explain what that means. So it's very interesting. The way that Tom talks about score is he says that score allows the audience to it, it gives an audience an idea of where to kind of locate their emotions in and throughout the whole movie it's the quickest way of of getting an emotion into an audience is through music mm. maybe maybe a tight close-up on someone's face you start to feel something within seconds of seeing a human face but in terms of shutting your eyes and giving you 
an emotional state. Music is the quickest way of doing that. And, and we are very careful about how we use it and what we're communicating to the audience about how they're supposed to be feeling, where, where, where they can compartmentalize their emotions, you know. So that, that's the job of an editor, basically. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. Cecile, is it, how would you describe, you know, if someone says, oh, hi, Cecile, what are you doing? You're like, oh, you know, I'm a music editor and producer. Um, and they go, oh, what is that? What, what, do you, what does that mean you do? How do you answer that question? Because I'm just yeah, answer, asking you it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a long answer just because it can take, lots, it, it can take quite a lot of uh, different roles. And uh, the way uh, Tom and McHugh work uh, is uh, yet another sort of very singular way of working where a lot of the time uh, a music editor will come on at the beginning when the cut is being uh, cut together with the editor uh, for the director's first version of, of their movie and the music editor will come on and place what we call temp music so mm -hmm. music that they that we source from other movies um, that will inform what we're trying to achieve with what what will become the original score written by a composer uh, but in the case of uh, McHugh and, and Tom they do not work with temp they don't want uh, anything that is foreign to what they're trying to achieve in the end so it's its own kind of challenge for sure, just because it's well, you're trying to shape the movie from a little bit of nothing. But the cool thing that we have had on these movies is that uh, our composer, Lauren Balfe, he just writes a lot of music ahead of time, uh, suites based on conversations that he's had about the plot, uh, about the the concepts, because mm -hmm. as Eddie said, there's not really a script to to really read through. So it's just the concepts that what we're trying to achieve emotionally, but also in terms of the story. And he'll also get access to dailies, which will sort of inform what he's what there what is being made. So from that, we got for this specific movie because it's been in the making for so long. We had hours and hours of amazing suites that he had written sort of by himself, sending them through one at a time. And then when we get to, when we get to actually putting them into picture, we just, it's, it's obviously trial and error. And he's, he's very generous in terms of just share and very trusting in that he just gives me all the stems. So meaning that I have all the separate parts of the piece of music. He's, he's happy for me to, to manipulate as much as I need to make it work to the scene. And uh, that is quite a big process in terms of finding what the tone is, because you can sort of put anything on a scene and it will read and uh, play completely differently. The key is really finding what works. And, and as Eddie said, which emotion is the right one and will convey what they want to say in the sort of underscore of it. So that's, that's, that's quite a big job. And then and then when when you get into the the nitty gritty of the of the cutting and while Eddie is working on refining his cut, then I have to each cue that would have been put together, I have to readjust every time there's a new change and uh, it's back and forth. And then sometimes scenes are completely cut out and then removed and then replaced with other things. So then you have to sort of see what still works, what doesn't work anymore, and what needs to be written. A new piece needs to be written. And then by the end, you're you're really the, the on the mix on this the sound stage where you're putting everything together, be it the sound and the sound effects, the dialogue and the music. You're 
you're sort of the representative of of the music so you're there to to make sure that the what was approved by McHugh what is loved by McHugh is being represented as faithfully as possible once we get um to the final stage of having it all put together. When you produce the score, Cecile, because on this film you have a score produced by credit as well, you're actually heavily involved during the scoring sessions as well. Can you talk a little as bit well. about that? Don't miss out that, yeah. because <laughs> Yeah, of course, yeah. That's, you know, she's yeah, slightly that's... underselling what her contribution to this film was. I want to <laughs> make that. sure that she gets full credit there. <laughs> well, uh, in this particular case, we have a... Uh, uh, McHugh is uh, very specific throughout the composition process while we're working on the cues and refining them. Um, everything is really crafted very carefully. Uh, he listens, he's just very, very attentive and he will know every beat and where things need to land. Mm. Uh, and because we will have worked together on moving things around, shifting them and adding them in other places. And because Lauren and um, his team are very very good with their demos and they're very close to a final representation when we get to the recording sessions the the big job is just making sure that we are our musicians our very talented musicians in london are basically able to play things uh and represent what the demo was trying to achieve with obviously um demo sounds um, so just trying to take it to the next step, but that will also stay very faithful to what was loved originally and in, in the in the essence of the demo. That could be things like um like like kind of tempo or 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 how hard a drums hit or the kind of yeah. all those kind of almost like intricacies of playing an instrument. That... It's very subtle interpretation yeah. changes because you realize you you sort of realize how much subtlety you can add inside of a string with string players, the string orchestra will play certain things and the smallest uh, adjustments can really make a huge difference. Um, how loud it's played and how uh, the bowing that they use, it's very, it's, Technique, it's very yeah. specific and it can make a huge difference as to from, from something that feels like it's, it's good enough. And then something that's, tr that's truly moving and really, uh, gets to the next step basically of just making a proper proper piece of music and with this as well you have that kind of um it can be viewed in different ways the fact that there, there's an existing sort of soundscape of music with these you know with this film there's a theme tune that people expect to hear in some way shape or form and I think that's one of the many clever things that that Chris um, and working with Lauren and his team do is the way that it's that it, that it weaves in and out in different, you know, it's almost kind of like in kind of in disguise in a way, a bit like, you know, yeah. a bit like Ethan in a way, you know, it's kind of like the music's almost mimicking that kind of thing going, is it him? Is it, you know, it's, it's, it's so clever and it's so subtle as well, the way that that's done. But that must be hard as well, knowing when to hold back on that and when to kind of go heavy on that kind of thing as well, even with something that's kind of so obvious like that. Well, it's actually really fun because, um, that music seems to be an endless well of possibilities. Um, I, Lauren is just in incredible with that in terms of finding new ways of <laughs> reinventing the way he can present the theme, not making it that obvious. You're not really sure why it's it sounds like Mission Impossible, but it does. And it's just it's just infused in the DNA of it. 
And then sometimes, obviously, it's completely obvious and really uh, out there and, and being really um, forceful with it. But it's really, it's really great how you can play around with how how obvious you can make it, and also how hidden you can make it. And be it from Fallout to this score, he's found ways of presenting the theme, the two themes, because we're always playing around between the main mission impossible theme and the plot theme. Mm. Um, between Fallout and this this one is is he's managed to again find new ways of using the harmonies, using the the little little motifs he can just take a couple notes and it's enough to sort of infuse it with the dna without it making without feeling like it's always a quote constantly the plot theme is da 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 and he you've heard that a few times haven't you yeah for example for example when the submarine is right at the beginning of the movie when the submarine is slowly drifting past the camera you hear and it's it's orchestrated beautifully and it's very subtle but the plot theme is there right at the beginning and when we're on the opening credits we're kind of playing with the percussion and one of the big things about these movies is you need to make sure people feel missiony from the very beginning you know <laughs> and so we're playing with the percussion and we're playing with the the rhythms of the bump 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 right at the beginning so as we're seeing this submarine come out of the darkness of the sea you start to feel more and more of the mission impossible theme tickling as you go yeah. and you start to go oh this is great this is mission impossible i remember this this is so cool <laughs> and then the submarine comes in and then we're into a different world but we've given you like 45 seconds of really great mission DNA mm -hmm. so that you're welcomed into back into the world. Even though we're not cutting to Ethan and the team, we're cutting to this Russian submarine. You know, you're given a very strong, exciting, tantalizing flavor of Mission Impossible straight up front, which was great fun to play around with. We did the same thing in Fallout as well with the, with the bongos yeah. in the beginning of yeah. Fallout. I love, I love how Lorne and his team reinvent tiny little pieces of the theme and stretch out the tempo and and use them in different ways so that the DNA of mission is present, but it's tangential to the main theme, you know. But I love the way that the way that they do that. It would be amazing, wouldn't it, just to highlight how important the music is to like have the two scenes that really spring to mind are the yellow car chase scene. And the and the train scene. If you were to remove the music from those two scenes and watch them, yeah. I mean they'd, they'd be great. But just the way that it kind of like it's almost kind of like someone sat next to you, like not physically nudging you, or kind of it's got such a physical presence and a physical response in yeah. in scenes like that, as well as smaller, like more kind of intimate moments. But in those in particular, if you were just to kind of mute the music for an audience and they'd be like, what? What's going on? You know, I know, of... I know. 
<laughs> I know it's the, the interesting thing when we're working on the movie, McHugh does not work with temp score and he quite often works with no sound. So when we're editing the action sequences, we're actually editing totally silent, which some filmmakers do, but not many. And we're imagining the sound and we're imagining the music. So, so little fun fact for you, our first friends and family screening on this movie ever was in October, 2022. The movie was nearly four hours long. All right. And it was just dialogue. There was no, virtually no temp score. I think I'm right in saying that. There was barely any temp yeah. score in there and very little sound design because average sound design is almost worse than no sound design. And so McHugh invited like 50 of his mates to come round and sit in the screening room in central London. And he did warn them. He said, this is as raw as it's ever going to be. It's like the rawest sausage meat. And it's a weirdly spiritual experience watching an almost silent film for four <laughs> hours. And we watched for two and a half hours, got to the end of Venice as it was then, took a break, a comfort break. Everyone had a snack. And then we came back and we watched another hour and a half, which was the train scene then. And, and the, most of it was silent. There was dialogue where there needed to be dialogue, but most of it was silent. And that 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 is where we start. And so it's funny that you say that, but we have all watched the movie in that state with nothing. And then McHugh likes to kind of feel how it's playing. Scott. And he's also he's also aware that more than half of the audience watching the movie won't speaking, won't be speaking English. So it'll be subtitled or it'll be dubbed. And so he wants the film to work on a purely visual level. And so he, he and, and I do think if you turn the sound down, you still get a lot of the experience of the movie from the, the composition of the shots and the lens choices, the, the dramatic, but, you know, the behavior and the, the line readings of the actors uh, and the, the, the emotions Facial. on their faces, yeah. you know, and um, and then the pace at which we're cutting it as well gives you a sense of, of how exciting something is and um but but so so it's it comes from a very pure visual language, which is then fleshed out with great sound design and and great score. And he's kind of evolved that over the years. Like certainly, I agree with Top Gun Maverick. You can watch that with the sound off and still have a great experience, a great visual experience. You know, and then and then from that four hour screening, we kind of compressed and compressed and compressed. And then Cecile came in and worked her magic with the score. And the thing is that it takes a long time, you know, nothing, any creative process starts out kind of lumpy and uneven and not great. You know, whatever it is, whether you're writing, whether you're creating a piece of art, whatever you're doing, you always revise it and, and go back to it and, and refine it and refine it and make it better and better and better. And people, humans have been doing that since the dawn of time with any piece of art. But it, it's the same for music. It's the same for editing. It's it's the same for every part of the process with visual effects. You know, we're constantly refining it. And both Cecile and I are not afraid of throwing something out and starting again if we have to, which we do quite a lot because you you never get it right first time. So you want to talk about that a bit? Or I'm, I'm probably well, doing your job. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing your job, Edith. But <laughs> I apologize. Cut that bit out, guys. I'm, I, I mean... This is this is the dream. Are you, what are you talking about? This is just amazing. I'm like, how many days have we got to talk? Because this is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of looking and exploring different ideas, one thing that came to mind is um, the search for giving our 
new characters an identity. And I think that was quite an interesting process in terms of, um, for example, Hayley Atwell's um, character, Grace, she so she 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 was coming in out of the blue and the question we were asking ourselves do, does she need a particular theme does it is it her own theme that would not be related to the mission theme to sort of put it her a, a little bit um separate because she she does remain quite quite separate from the team for a while and in the end from from various interpretation and and almost by surprise, we realized what her theme was, and it was this fairly romantic, a first romantic version of the plot theme, again, reharmonized so that it would have more of a sweeping uh, feel. And you can hear it for the first time when Ethan and Grace meet in the airport. It's varied and it's, it's turned a bit on its head as the movie progresses. But that was one of those discoveries where it took a long time mm. and we tried quite a few different things, trying to do something that was completely new and completely unrelated. And McHugh is just not quite feeling it. He felt like that, I don't think we need to set her aside. She needs to become part of the team quite quickly. And that was sort of the solution is musically, we just make her Amazing. part of the musical language. And our antagonists, on the other hand, they got their own theme, the entity and Gabriel and and um, and Paris, Pom Clementiev's um, character. They they each get their own sort of musical world, which is which is fairly fairly uh, more distant from the the mission um, sound. And and I thought that was quite an interesting process, which sort of it happens without you really realizing it is happening, but you 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 keep thinking about it in the back of your head. And that's where I think that the the DNA of the mission music, the original music, is such a big uh, well that you can just come uh, dig into all the time to get new ideas from. Yeah, that was that was quite an exciting process to just find. That's amazing. Yeah, so interesting that idea of kind of how narratively you can incorporate kind of what's to come in a story through a motif of music. That's so clever. Yes. Eddie, with the with the, the with the train scene, okay. There's, I mean, it's I don't know where you where you start with with something like that. It's it's a it's, I mean, the film is is I loved it so much, and but that that scene in particular, like I did sort of I, like you say about leaning in. I think I sort of was almost like three rows in front of me by the time it had sort of finished and was sat on someone's shoulders, not even realizing, and then. There's a, there's a bit where like Tom's holding onto Haley's hand, and you can physically see like how much he's putting into this because his face is bright red, and you can see the kind of, and I love that it's been kept in like that, you know, in terms of like there's there's not a kind of it's not a kind of vanity thing of kind of you can yes. really see how he's kind of like oh I'm gonna yeah. I'm not letting her go kind of thing yes, I love yes, that yes. But with that scene, how do you edit something like that? It's so interesting. So you're talking about the whole, the, all the train cars at the end, right? Yeah. When they're running through the train yeah, cars. When it, yeah, so, with, the, with the drops, with the kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. That, that was... So, so, okay, like every sequence in this movie, it started out much, much longer. You know, obviously we started at four hours with our first assembly and we kept compressing the film down to the length that it is now. Things that you thought were essential are no longer essential. That scene was one of the first things that Chris had an idea about. And it was back in February of 2020, even when we were still working on Top Gun. Well, that was our first previs was dated 
so well over three years ago now. And he had this idea of Ethan and Grace climbing through the kitchen and then the restaurant and then the bar car. What's great about the way McHugh directs is that he very subtly sets these locations up in your mind earlier in the scene. You know, you hear a woman playing the piano in the in the in the in the bar car and you see Paris walking through the dining car when when there's all those people there in the white and you feel and then Paris unlocks Gabriel in the luggage car and then you see Grace go through the the luggage well Ethan arrives in the dining car firstly and then Grace um goes through the luggage car you know where the door is locked so a lot of the and runs through the kitchen car as well so we're setting all this up in your mind so that when they're going back through them you're 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 going hang on a second there's a kitchen then there's a so you you're expecting the kind of challenges that that are coming up subconsciously you know not not overtly the previs was very long and i remember thinking we may have action fatigue here and action fatigue is something we're very conscious of in these movies because there is a fine line in the meal of the movie between the, a course being just right and a course being too much so that you're you're too full by the time the next course comes along yeah. and we're very very sensitive to that for example ethan driving the bmw through rome when he's handcuffed to grace there was a lot more of that and it was great there was great stuff of them in the bmw but the the feedback that we got from the audience was it's all awesome but it's too much and we've kind of seen Ethan in a BMW, not handcuffed to someone else driving with one hand, but the image of Ethan Hunt speeding in a BMW is quite familiar. But Ethan and Grace in a Fiat 500, now that's something completely different. We've never seen that before. So we so we we compressed the BMW section right down. Even in the last week of editing, after two and a half years, I wow. was saying to Chris, "Look, I think we've got to get rid of this. We've got to get rid of this. We've got to get rid of this." Some stuff actually exists in some of the trailers, which is not in the movie, um, but it's for the greater good. And we all and Tom kept saying to us, "You've got to leave the audience wanting more. You have to leave them." so that they go oh it's over oh i i could have just done with a bit more of that I, oh oh but it was important to get to the fear and then in the train you've had this massive fight on the roof of the train and we're intercutting with grace doing her stuff and what's going on inside the train cars and so we're very conscious of the fact that the audience also it's two and a half hours into the movie and everyone needs a bathroom break and the, the, the there's a point at which Grace and Ethan have kind of successfully retrieved the key. So the usual motto is once you've defeated the villain, end the movie as quickly as possible, you know, do a little wrap up and then roll the credits. But we still had this great sequence there at the end. And because Ethan's got the key, but he hasn't got away, you're still rooting for them as a couple to survive through all this chaos. But it was too long and people kept saying it's great but we're, we're we're so full of the fight on the roof of the train that this is just too long and so literally that last piece of action the fight on the train in the tunnel you know all of that stuff going into the last piece of action where the train is crashing into the ravine and then ethan and grace are, are running up through all the different carriages we got that down to the absolute bone. We're literally going through every shot frame by frame going, do we need this frame? Do we need this frame? Can we trim this by two frames? Can we trim this? Can we remove this shot and have the scene still make sense? So we got it right down to the bone over a course of several months of testing it, showing it, 
revising it, listening to the audience, still too long, still too many train cars, still too long. And there is one terrific stunt that we removed entirely after the zero G where Ethan and Grace go in the white car when they do the zero G. There was a whole section where they had to climb up on on the roof and hold it as all the furniture went underneath them. But again, that was just too much. The audience was like, the the meal is too rich. We're too (laughs) full now. We need to kind of get. So we removed that section and and they, they just climbed straight up into the next car and then to the grand piano. And then, of course, you're right, but they they did that whole action on a vertical set for real. So that is why Ethan is holding on to Grace. Well, you see Tom Cruise hand, holding on to Hayley Atwell. You know, they've done like 10 takes and he's exhausted and he's like gripping on to her for dear life. They are supported by cables, but in order to make it look real, the cables aren't taking all of the weight. They're yeah. taking like most of the weight. But Tom is still hanging there for real, holding Hayley. And it takes its toll. And Working on a vertical set is very, very, very tiring indeed. Like imagine doing push-ups for like an hour or sorry, pull-ups for two hours and just hanging by your hands. It's extremely tiring. But what you do with these films is you do it for real. So they built a vertical train car. And and I love that set because it reminds me of the Poseidon Adventure, which is one of my favorite movies um, when I was a kid, is is like seeing weird geography of furniture in like weird positions. It's just great fun to see that stuff. And of course, the grand piano is it's so it's so analog and old school, you know, and and the real trick with that scene where where Ethan and Haley are one of the biggest laughs in the movie is when he says, do you trust me? And she shakes her head. No, yes. do you remember that? Everyone's <laughs> laughing. And they discovered that on the day. It was like Tom and McHugh allow the actors to play around Brilliant. with ideas. And I remember when I was there, actually, on the day when they were filming that, when they discovered that moment one take Haley just said look I'm going to try something would you let me try something and she just shook her head and you can hear on the take all the crew laughing because no she wasn't expecting to do that and then Tom just went lent straight into it and was like no you and the whole idea of him turning around and her grabbing him and trying to hold on when there's this massive piano hanging above them but they give us a lot of options so I remember when I was building that I was working my way through like two hours of dailies for what is effectively 50 seconds of screen time you know it's a very short amount of screen time and again it's I always put in more like lots of different flavors and ideas and then we we kind of refine it down and go down to the the the, you know the purest essence of what the scene is which is effectively Ethan trying to convince Grace to jump over and changing the the tempo of the of the cuts so that you're just kind of more and more breathlessly excited as you're going through and the other thing to remember is that most of that sequence we play actually without score and the score starts when we when they're in the final carriage and the piano has dropped and then we cut to the shot of the couplet giving way you know between the two carriages and then we have this great cue which builds up to the moment where Ethan's holding on to Grace and you think how are they ever going to get out of this <laughs> you know it's crazy it's like it's in, it is literally an impossible mission this they're going to fail and there were there were whole flavors of that scene where where Grace was like encouraging Ethan to let her go. They, they tried this whole thing where she was going, "You have the key. You have to let me go. You have to survive." And she's become so selfless that she's prepared to kind of sacrifice herself for the greater good of saving humanity because Ethan has the key, and he has to get away with the key. 
but that that stuff didn't didn't work so in the end we ended up with this very positive version of the scene where ethan is holding on to her and saying i'm not going to let you go and she's trying to get a foothold and they're just being very positive about we're going to survive even though you can see that his hand is giving way so the 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 answer is it it starts off very long and we work at it and work at it and work at it thinking of you guys i'm thinking of you edith sitting in the movie watching it and i'm thinking we have to make sure that this is completely awesome for the audience and we won't settle until it's as good as it can possibly be and that's down to the to every detail of the visual effects the editing the sound design you know when you hear the piano going clong clong and you're reminding the audience the piano's up there to all the stuff that that Cecile is is working on for months as well and and when she talks about McHugh working on every note of the score, it literally is. He sits in with you and they go through what she's done almost note for note, checking that it's as good as it can possibly be. And it's it's every layer of the score that he goes through as well. You know, it's all the brass and it's the percussion and it's the strings and it's the pianos. And, and he- in the same way that in the same way that he will work on the editing with no sound, he will work on the music just with music so he wants to make sure that the musical rhythm and everything in the music is actually doing everything he wants it to do beyond the dialogue beyond the sound and then obviously we make sure that it also works with the dialogue in but if he if it works on the musical level for him it it actually ends up working quite easily in the in the end as well you said there about leaving the audience wanting more, and that kind of almost feels like what I should do with this as well, because I've got, I want to throw something your way as well, because obviously you're, I want to say thanks, I'm assuming that you're already in part two, and I've taken you out of that for a second, but I would love to talk to you both about Top Gun as well at some point, because if we can maybe do an episode at some point, you know, whenever it's good for you about Top Gun Maverick, because that film again, you know, my 10-year-old, you've done, you, know, you talked earlier um, Eddie, about kind of having those kind of monumental moments in cinema as a kid kind of thing. Top Gun Maverick was that for my 10-year-old. It's the film that he's watched again and again and again and again and again. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. It makes it, me so happy. I, honestly, oh God. That, was, that was me, you know, watching Star Wars when I was eight years old or watching E.T. or Jaws or Close Encounters or I'm I'm heavily on the Spielberg there, aren't I? But, you know, <laughs> but, but um, any of those movies for me i remember seeing temple of doom in a cinema and i didn't get taken to the cinema much as a kid so the experiences i did have were very epic in yeah, my mind important. because yeah. of the gigantic screen but also i i think about the fact that cinemas were closed for nearly 2 years and top gun was one of the first movies that people went back to watch yeah after what we had been through and for some kids, it would have been their first experience going to a cinema. It, it may not have been for your 10-year-old because you are you love movies, Edith, and you were probably taking him to the cinema when he was three, I imagine, or four. He's maybe so, seen things a little bit younger than most people. Okay. okay, no, exactly. But it wouldn't have been his first experience in a cinema, but it might have been one of his first experiences after not being in a cinema for two years. And the, the, the intensity of the emotion that you get from a big screen when you're not checking your phone. And and you've got this amazing sound, which is shakes the room and shakes your entire body from the beginning of Top Gun. And the score, I I do love the score of that movie. It is- 
yeah, it's terrific. <laughs> and and the way so that clever. The, the way so that clever. the Lorne and Hans Zimmer and Harold Faltermeyer reinvented the theme for the Dark Star sequence and for when Maverick and Rooster are stealing the F-14 at the end oh and God. all that stuff. Like I, I, I remember the first time I heard that cue, just thinking, this is everything I ever dreamed of. <laughs> when I was editing the scene, I was thinking I'm just, but the way they incorporated the dangers, the five note danger zone light motif into that cue, it's so good. It's so good. If you listen yeah. to that cue, I, I, I love it so much. And Again, it was the Top Gun was the hardest thing I've ever done by many orders of magnitude. I can't describe to you the pressure that we all felt to prove to the world that making a sequel to Top Gun was a half decent <laughs> idea, which you know nobody thought it was. But and the fact that it turned out so great and oh. was able to to deliver what millions of people wanted out of the film was just such a gift. It was great for all of us who worked on it. Well, let's do a Top Gun episode and let's have you back as well for. Part two, um, Dead Reckoning, if you're up for it, guys. It'd be With so pleasure. lovely. We could talk more. Absolutely. That'd be lovely. Yeah, yeah it's great. And Aww. I'm I'm going to just throw some some love Cecile's way because she is, <laughs> she is completely responsible for, like, the heavy lifting of how this score came together. Like, the amount of work that she puts in because she cares so much about the, the, the audience experience the way that I do the way that Tom does and McHugh does but Cecile is really one of the best in the world at what she does and she's she will hate she'll be very embarrassed that I'm saying this <laughs> but I feel so fortunate to to work with her and to have her on the team and to collaborate with her and she 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 doesn't give up you know she keeps working at something until it's great and just a little like one extra thought about Dead Reckoning part one is the scene in the nightclub when yes. they go to the nightclub uh, in Venice and Cecile cut all those source cues. So they tell the story of the scene and they introduce characters and they change emotional gears. That stuff is really hard to do, really hard. And she was given like 200 tracks from the Paramount Music Department and her and McHugh drilled down until they found, is it three cues that you use yeah, in the end. Three yeah. Songs. Yeah, so yeah, three songs where she was given the stems. And if you listen to the music editing just in the nightclub, it is absolutely world-class and so difficult. And she makes it look very easy, but she worked at it and worked at it. And I remember when I walked into her room at Twickenham Film Studios and she pressed play, it was perfect. Honestly, the first pass was almost perfect on that. It was, it was so good. And just when you watch the movie to pay attention to, to what the, the music in the nightclub is doing, it's, it's, it is literally like world-class work from Cecile. So thank you very much is what well, I'm saying. Well, that's very kind. Well, it's, I think this is kind of yeah. nice because it will encourage people to, once they've heard this going, I really want to go and see it again, just to kind of uh -huh. all these different points. So, you know, there's method in my madness here of, of kind exactly. of, yeah, of kind of, getting more people into the cinema and seeing this fantastic film again. It's a sequence that came together. We were struggling with finding the right tracks and that as soon as we sort of figured out those might work and I tried them and it was quite uncanny the way they would, I was able to manipulate them to, to really underscore the, the important moments and really actually bring out the emotional beats and the important beats in the scene through this through those songs and it, yeah it was quite quite fun 
Oh, listen, I've, I've loved chatting to you both and I really hope we can we can do it at least two two more times. <laughs> We're here for you, Edith. We love your yes. show. And I'm, I'm so, yeah, it's an honour to be on. It Aww. really is. I hope everyone out there in podcast land has enjoyed this chat. And Aww. wherever you are, if you're on the gym or taking the dog for a walk or whatever you're driving to work, Get to, well. Get to the cinema. Get to the cinema. See Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Um, Cecile, Eddie, thank you so much for your time. Genuinely, it's been thank you. so insightful and wonderful. Thank you. Thank, thank you so you, much. Edith. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 that is Curtain Call appropriately rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Cecile Turnisak and Eddie Hamilton my huge huge thanks to Cecile and Eddie for taking the time to talk to me Dead Reckoning Part 1 is on general release now and provides all the thrills spills excitement that you want and you expect so get yourself along to the cinema to see it if you want to hear my chats with Lorne including a live conversation at the BFI on London South Bank and with McHugh as I'm now going to refer to him as as Cecile and Eddie did in our conversation uh, head to edithbowman.com where you can hear every single episode of the podcast and I have already been in touch with Eddie to try and sort out that special Top Gun version of our chat so watch this space uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and our YouTube channel is the place to find loads and loads of video content. Next up then, back to our usual Monday routine and I'm thrilled, so excited to welcome back for her hat trick, her third sitting, the one and only Greta Gerwig. Yep, we're talking Barbie, we're talking dance routines, we're talking Mark Ronson, we're talking, let's just put this image in your head, Ryan Gosling as a hot gossip dancer. Mm -hmm. Greta Gerwig is our guest on next week's episode. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Uh